The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, September 10th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. John Bolton never seemed to be a great match with the sensibilities of our president, Donald Trump, except for two factors. One, Bolton angered liberals, and two, he was on Fox a lot. What am I saying? That's the only qualification for a high-profile job in this administration. Alas, that job has come to an end, and the successor to H.R. McMaster, who is the successor to Michael Flynn, is now available for comment on the Judge Janine show once more. There were a few things about Bolton that clearly irked Trump. One, Bolton's actually quite smart. Two, he knew how to expertly navigate a bureaucracy. Three, he really is pro-war. Not just into belligerent talk, as Trump is. Not just into the fiery, furious verbiage of war. Bolton really does want to bomb the shit out of them, and not just rhetorically. Four months ago, The New Yorker, in a profile of Bolton, quoted a Western diplomat as saying, the trouble for Bolton is Trump does not want war. He does not want to launch military operations. To get the job, Bolton had to cut his balls off and put them on Trump's desk. I've seen Trump's desk, didn't notice any balls. Four, the fourth most irksome thing about Bolton in the eyes of Trump is that Bolton obviously wasn't obsequious and didn't kowtow to every single Trump utterance. New York Magazine's Olivia Nuzzi quoted Trump as saying, I argue with everyone except Pompeo. And then he added, he's also never quarreled with Mike Pence. Guess what? The safest jobs of everyone not named Trump or Kushner are the jobs currently occupied by the vice president and the secretary of state. The fifth irksome thing about Bolton in the eyes of Trump was clearly the mustache, the sloppiness of the mustache. I am not kidding. Trump really wants his top brass to look the part. Here he was hours after his inauguration. But we have so many of our cabinet members here. I see my generals. Those generals are going to keep us so safe. They're going to have a lot of problems the other side. They're going to look at, they're going to look at a couple of them. These are central casting. If I'm doing a movie, I pick you, General. Well, Bolton, unlike Flynn and McMaster, were not generals, and he was certainly not from central casting, except maybe if you're casting a cranky rancher in a Western. Hey, you're darn tootin'. Yes, sir, Bob. Gabby Hayes there. Gabby Hayes, by the way, is credited in having appeared in 188 different movies in what Wikipedia calls a partial filmography. Bolton really just ever played one role, Relentless Hawk, and that role wore out its welcome. On the show today, I spiel about a solution that assesses the problem of mentally unstable people wielding slightly modified weapons of war, a solution that just might be crazy enough to be totally crazy. And I'd also like to mention that we have a live comedy show coming up in six days, Monday, at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Three comics will be there. Hari Kondabalu, Marina Franklin, Khalid Rahman. Only one will leave. Actually, we let them all leave. But what we do is we aggressively question them about their comic choices and their comic phrasing. It'll be like they're defending their doctoral theses. It will be exquisitely insightful and quite uncomfortable if everything goes right. And should I mention this? I will mention this. 
a special guest will be there. A relative of mine, he will show up as well. It will be special, a special time. Join the fun at slate.com slash live for tickets. Up now, James Ponowazic is the New York Times television critic and writer. And as such, he's been charting the progress of a very big television character who's only gotten bigger, bigger than Nathan Fillion, bigger than Steve Harvey. Yes, bigger than Harvey. It's Trump. It's Donald J. Trump. Audience of one, Donald Trump television and the fracturing of America. It's all around us and also here on The Gist. Next. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? So when James Ponowazek was on Reliable Sources, Brian Stelter praised the New York Times critic and said, I've liked his work since Time Magazine. I'm going to go beyond that. I've been a huge fan of James Ponowazek since he wrote for Salon. And you know, you know the cost that it takes for me to praise Salon. He is out with a new book, his first book, and he waited for just the right subject. Audience of one, Donald Trump television and the fracturing of America. Hello, James. Welcome. Uh, hey, Mike. Thank you. Glad, glad to know you've been a fan since I was playing small indie clubs. <laughs> yeah. So this guy, this Trump guy, you interviewed him once. What was that like? It, not, I did not at the time think that, you know, I was interviewing a future president, obviously. This was just before The Apprentice came out. He's mm-hmm. talking to Time Magazine. He's doing a lot of press. And, you know, he his manner at that point was like a celebrity who wanted to impress people and wanted people to like him. But there was that sort of element of, you know, it was, it was kind of tough to keep him on a topic. He wants to make an impression on you. He has in his office this stack of off prints of, I think it was like a Crane's New York business article about the Trump organization. He puts one in your hands. You see, you see, James, I, I'm by far the largest developer in New York. You know, I don't have to be doing this. You know, right. I, I think that was like meant to be the takeaway of the interview. You know, right. I do not need to be doing just so you know. And also you he know. was literally misquoting the Crane's article that he had put in your hand. Yeah. Which he's was not make- the largest developer. He's like maybe the largest. He says he's the largest private developer. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was uh, very it was a very Trumpian claim. The thing about that, you had by this point probably done a hundred similar not it wasn't a press junket, but interviews. You go to someone's apartment, yeah. you interview them, you go to someone's house. And he didn't seem so different from many of the other reality show wannabe charlatans, people who are famous for being famous or famous for the fact that they very much want to be famous, right? Yeah, no, I mean he was he was sort of a glad hander. You know, I remember kind of, you know, it was difficult to keep him on a topic. That's that's not so unusual. I, you know, I'd love to say that there was some kernel where I saw the future, but you know, it was, uh, yeah, he was, he was a, a celebrity glad hander, you know, pushing his show. But my point in raising how mundane he was, even, you know, as marked against the world of the people that he was trying to be a part of is that I think we make the mistake and you don't, but I think we make the mistake of thinking about Trump as singular or only Trump could have done it. And I see that there are thousands of people 
with his particular predilections and afflictions and quest for fame. But there were one or two lucky things about Trump that actually made him president. It wasn't the narcissism. It wasn't the fact that he really understands TV. It was all that, plus the fact that he married it to this political point of view that the vast majority of other people in that position wouldn't have been drawn to. It's the sort of thing that, like a lot of history, you look at it in retrospect and it seems, oh, of course, it's obvious that it happened this way. How could it not have? But I think there was a sense of, you know, one thing falling into place as another. You know, in, in his media career that I talk about, you know, things sort of built on the previous thing. You, you, you become a New York tabloid star and that makes you a TV presence and that gets you the big celeb book deal and that makes you, you know, this ubiquitous figure, you know, appearing with Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone 2. And then eventually, you know, when Mark Burnett is at the Survivor finale and sees your name on the the Central Park skating rink, he thinks, oh, that guy who used to be Donald Trump would be perfect for, you know, it's a lot of things sort of fell in place. So he had this intuition, you know, or, or, or this instinct early on that the celebrity was the path to success in a media culture and that it's more important to like seem like a thing than to actually be the thing. And, and, you know, but yeah, I think it is true to say that, you know, it's not as if he's the only famous person who has intuited that. Uh, a lot of things fell the right way. And then, you know, when you talk about his political career, it's also a matter of, you know, he wanted to do it, which is sort of a rare thing for a celebrity. You know, people talk about, you know, how Oprah Winfrey could be a version of Donald Trump. Yeah. Oprah Winfrey's got other things she wants to be doing, you know. And he wanted to do it, I think, plausibly not to become president, but for somewhat logical reasons of brand extension and an Oprah Winfrey or other people who have all those traits, understanding celebrity and being the symbol of the thing more than the thing, most of those other people wouldn't be in the position to say, aha, and a presidential run advances, logically does advance this ambition. I don't know that I have it analyzed down to the point of, you know, whether his thought process was, oh, I'm just going to do this and, you know, the apprentices ratings will go. But, you know, I've, 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 I've heard, you know, that sort of theory, but I do think it is, you know, sort of, his business was always his brand. Yes. And, you know, being a human brand, it's like, you know, you're a shark. You always have to be advancing or you die. You know, the brand has to be doing something new. You know, certainly whether it was to, you know, advance himself just as a political figure, a potential, you know, cable news network owner or whatnot, it was the next thing that would get that camera eye on him. And it just, it succeeded beyond anybody's imagining. So what about television? You talk about Neil Postman and Trow and all the context of no context, all the great texts of media criticism. But what about the way that TV began to be shaped at the time that he was running for president? What about that confluence enabled him to rise? Well, you know, one funny thing you talk about like Postman and Trow. And one thing I was struck by, you know, sort of doing, you know, the, the reading for, for, for this book and going back to them is that a lot of these, you know, sort of classic media theorists, they were writing like right around the time that Donald Trump was starting to emerge as a, a media early figure. 80s, yeah. uh, you know, early 80s, you know, and, and, and this is sort of the era when Postman was very prescient. Uh, you know, you could say he predicted a lot of things about our current time. You know, one thing that he didn't write about because it didn't really exist at the time was cable television. He was talking about television as a monolith, which it used to be. ABC, NBC, CBS, 
uh, massive audiences. It wasn't a medium that fragmented people or split them into bubbles. It was a media that sort of enforced a monoculture mm-hmm. on America. And, you know, part of my broadcasting and the idea is exactly. to not offend. That's exactly. A, a very important in broadcasting. A broad likability to most people, mostly defined as not being unlikable. Yeah. What they say is, you know, the least objectionable program, you yeah. know, put on something that doesn't give people a reason to change the channel. And, you know, one of my guiding lights as a TV critic is that, you know, very often the the business determines the content. So when I, you know, sort of set out in this book to say, you know, A, how did Trump evolve as a media figure? And B, kind of how did we get where we are? Well, you know, for me, if, if television is a big piece of that, where did television, you know, come from and go to? And part of that is that from that sort of precise moment when he's launching himself, going mm-hmm. on the Today Show, talking to Rona Barrett, you know, around 1980, that is, right then is like the apex of broadcasting, you know, giant, uh, uh, you know, giant monolithic Three television. Three networks and from that there, stride the earth and then Fox comes, yeah. you know, maybe in the late 80s and then it's four for a while. Right. Yeah. And the sort of breaking apart of that monolith into, you know, a zillion cable channels, the internet, you know, this whole, this whole story that we know, cultural bubbles, that ends up facilitating a lot of the things through which Donald Trump becomes a, you know, a, a political figure and president. You, you wouldn't really have reality TV as, a, you know, the mass phenomenon it was if you were still airing the, you know, television of, you know, the 50s and 60s. Uh, you know, you wouldn't have the rise of charismatic TV antiheroes on HBO who sort of, you know, pr- they really kind of cr- introduce this idea into the culture of rooting for the bad guy. He may not be nice, but he gets the job done. Right. All these sort of things um, developed out of that fragmentation of the media, which is part of the story that I'm, t- uh, I'm telling. And they converged basically in the form of this man made out of television. Okay, couple things. One, don't the compelling TV antiheroes have a lot more depth and a code, in fact, to them? I mean, I think a lot more. I think Omar, Tony Soprano, and Walter White have much more ethical direction than Donald Trump does and much more substance. They're actually, you know, if we take them as real people, they're more meaningful and interesting. And the second thing is, the antihero was popular in movies, Easy Rider, Raging Bull, but are you saying because it wasn't ubiquitous and in the home, it wasn't as important? Um, Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, this is part of my bias as a television critic, but I think that if movies popularize ideas or archetypes in the culture, television really popularizes them. And, and, and once that gets established in television, it metastasizes so that, you know, there are elements of that concept in more sort of pulpy network entertainments like 24. And, you know, it becomes a theme of, you know, again, reality TV. You know, what is Simon Cowell? Simon Cowell is, you know, the guy, you may not like him, but he tells it like it is. It's right. So A, that creates this, you know, sort of broader template for this kind of abrasive figure, unapologetic figure. And then that is multiplied or, or you know, it, it's further enabled by other things that come out of the fragmentation of the media. For instance, the development of a conservative media empire, the existence well, of Fox News. It's totally important. I want to get to that in a second, but a yeah. thought just hit me. The other thing about the antihero and th- the antihero being compelling, obviously the shows I mentioned, great writing, um, many elements that uh, make the, the draw the viewer in. But 
Again, let's just say Walter White, Omar, and Tony Soprano, they resonate because they're operating against a system that is corrupt, that they think is corrupt, and that the viewer actually agrees with, that the drug trade in Baltimore is a shambles. So for Omar to take advantage of it, that's fine. Tony Soprano, what he's talking about, you know, family, Walter White talking about the drug trade. So the reason that maybe Trump works as an anti-hero if you were that character during the good times of the Clinton years, it doesn't resonate as much as it does at a time when a lot of people are looking at the American political system as really corrupt and needing an anti-hero to bring it down. You know, it comes after Lehman Brothers, after Enron. And I think also another significant thing, uh, which I get into somewhere in the book, is that you, you see, I mean, the timeline, cultural timelines are always a little fuzzy. The Soprano started in 1999. But uh, this metastasization of the anti-hero in in popular culture, really also takes off after 9-11, you know, where you have this notion where you suddenly have people like Dick Cheney saying, you know, if we want to fight these people who want to kill you and kill your children, you know, we have to deal with some unsavory elements. We have to, you have to deal with the dark side. You know, you can't just, you can't be a nice guy in this world. And the person, the voter, the viewer who sees themselves as the sophisticate excuses that behavior. And I think that's a, a characteristic of both reality television viewers and world wrestling federation enterprise viewers that the viewers are always telling themselves well i'm much more sophisticated and savvy than the average viewer and that's exactly what's going on with political voters or especially those who vote for trump you're so naive most people are more naive than i am just like most wrestling fans are buying it i'm smart enough not to buy it but i still believe in donald but that's why i believe in donald trump yeah i mean absolutely one thing honestly as you know somebody who loves television and i'm a big fan of a lot of reality shows i still watch survivor you know i I watch a ton of reality. I've always been annoyed by the idea that people say, oh, you know, reality TV, it's just this genre for dumb people and they totally buy into it. Reality TV viewer, nobody believes the idea that reality TV isn't entirely real than reality TV viewers. It's part of the appeal of watching. You're looking for the sleight of hand in the editing. You're looking for, you know, are the people appearing on camera being, you know, fake or or, or acting out? You know, what's what are their motives, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I think that, that that creates sort of this culture of savviness. Yes. Uh, you it's, know, all, the, the it's also a faux savviness a little bit. And, you know, I'm a journalist. Like, I'm a fan of skepticism. I think it's a good idea for people to have a healthy skepticism toward institutions and so on. What you can do if you have a particular motive is you can push that into cynicism, yes. right? And you can see, and there, there's been great writing about, like, you know, how this is uh, operated in, in, like, Putin's Russia. Right. You know, where, where there's also this sort of marriage of politics and realitized uh, uh, entertainment. Right, right. Where you're using, you can use it to, like, go past that sort of healthy skepticism and say, you know, everything's phony. Everybody's got an angle. You mm-hmm. know, so just, just be smart. You're, you're, you're more clever. Don't listen to all the noise. Just, you know, stick with your team. If, you know, our guy tells a few lies, it's what everybody does. It's the game and you're smart and you know it's the game. Do you think the media gatekeepers, meaning mostly the television gatekeepers, could have done something differently, could have been better at their jobs or more strategic in how they handled him to have prevented the rise of Trump. I mean, I would say first, you know, it's not 
the job of a TV network to prevent the rise of anybody. Uh, well, I would argue it maybe it's a three-step process. Like we enforce accountability. We have efficient ways of making sure our viewers understand that lies are being said. Yeah. And we consistently either fact check or hold to account the people who are making these lies. So it's not you're right. It yeah, wouldn't no, be how could, a, but how could they have how could they have done their job? Better? I mean, people you know, would say, and I've gotten into this argument yeah. with Folk and Flick and other friends of mine. You know, he says Zuckerberg shouldn't have put him on as much as he did. Yeah. And and there are academics who say that not in the general, but certainly during the primary, the amount of coverage he got for every speech absolutely gave rise to him. And yeah. I countered, I can't disprove that except that I watched all those speeches and I said, this guy's an incredible liar. And I also thought it was newsworthy. The New York Times did so many articles on him, probably many more articles than they did on Ted Cruz. Mm. But the takeaway for most of those articles is this guy's a dangerous liar. So yeah. I don't fault them for running the articles. Uh, well, you know, but that's where I think there is an argument against, you know, say running so many of the rallies uh, uh, unfiltered. Uh, simply... Uh, devoting all this attention to him because he's the most outlandish, because it's great, because who knows what he'll say next. It's an effect beyond the simple, rational idea of, is he telling the truth or not? Is this, you know, is this claim plausible or not? It's creating this gestalt where he's the protagonist of the election. Mm -hmm. That has an effect, even if the bulk of the coverage is, you know, negative, even if a lot of that is debunking. If there's not, you know, a sort of a, a news judgment and, you know, are we putting this on because people will learn something on it or are we just putting it on because it incites people? To put it in the showbiz terms that, uh, you know, I think Donald Trump might relate more to, it's just a question of, you know, do you believe that there is any such thing as bad publicity? Yeah. Uh, and I don't think there was, you know, for, for him in 2016. Audience of One, Donald Trump Television and the Fracturing of America is the new book by James Ponowazek. It goes there. Thank you, James. Uh, thanks a lot, Mike. And now the spiel. The problem, mass shootings. The solution, exploring whether technology including phones and smartwatches can be used to detect when mentally ill people are about to turn violent. Yes, that is part of a proposed bureau named HARPA, as proposed by former NBC executive Bob Wright and is being pursued by Ivanka Trump. HARPA is the Health Advanced Research Projects Agency. That is not to be confused with Oprah's production company, Harpo, which is Oprah spelled backwards. This plan in getting in between a disturbed person and a gun by focusing on the disturbed person's moment of agitation, that's merely thinking conducted backwards. So we have an unwell person. He or she, but overwhelmingly he, has an arsenal available when to intercede in this process. I know the moment he snaps and wants to access his arsenal, which constitutionally he must be allowed to access. Because when the thoughts in his head change, well, I can think of no constitutional amendment that addresses that. The genius plan, as I said, was proposed by Bob Wright, the 76-year-old former chairman of NBC, chairman when The Apprentice was riding high in the ratings. Oh, wait, oh, wait. The Harpa alarm is going off. Someone is thinking of something crazy. Let's see 
who this unhinged person is. It's Bob Wright. Yes, it's former NBC chairman Bob Wright. The Washington Post reports, quote, after the recent shootings in El Paso and Dayton, Ohio, Ivanka Trump, as those advocating for a new agency, whether it could produce new approaches to stop mass shootings, advisors to Wright quickly pulled together a three-page proposal called Safe Home. Safe Home stands for Stopping Aberrant Fatal Events by Helping Overcome Mental Extremes. Bob Wright, by the way, was recently awarded the Acronym Trophy, which of course stands for Award for the Creation of Ridiculously Objectionable Names, You Demand. Safe Homes for Mass Shootings Outside the Home. Great. Now, HARPA, it should be noted, has also been endorsed by Joe Biden, the idea of HARPA, I guess if you're a 76-year-old multimillionaire and you did greenlight the Torkelsons, you're going to have the ear of the 76-year-old challenger and the 73-year-old president. This seems like a great doable idea with just absolutely no downside. (sighs) One last note. The headline of the Washington Post piece that reported on Harpa and Safe Home was this. White House weighs controversial plan on mental illness and mass shootings. No, it is not controversial. It is asinine. It is risible. It is unrealistic. It is batshit cuckoo bananas. Controversial means a lot of people have considered it and opinions are fairly split. Or the reaction is something like, huh, that's objectionable. Or even, huh, I like that, though some people don't. The objection cannot start with gales of laughter. That is not something that can be described as controversial. Rule of thumb, if 95% of the people who hear your idea laugh, and if 99.9% of the non-septuagenarian non-Avankas laugh, we cannot call that idea controversial. It's more like, oh, what's the word? I used a couple the Washington Post probably wouldn't resort to in a headline, but how about this one? It's stupid. White House weighs stupid plan for mental illness and mass shootings. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader and Daniel Schrader alone produces the gist. His favorite Gabby Hayes character was either Hashknife Brooks in Riders of the Desert or Shanghai McHenry in Call of the Prairie. Now, if you'd like to hear your name in the credits right alongside Daniel's, if that's a lifelong dream, if that's hashtag a squad goal, we are in need of an assistant producer to work to make this crazy dream a reality every day. It is a fun job. Everyone who's ever had it likes it. We did a producer's roundtable as part of our fifth anniversary special. All the producers had fun stories to tell. So be part of the longest running daily news analysis podcast, this one, or recommend a brilliant audio producer you may know. Go to Slate.com slash jobs. The gist. We enjoyed Gabby as John Coffin, a.k.a. Pegleg Sanderson in Justice of the Range. And also as Chuck Wiggins in Breed of the Border. Or maybe that was Buck Biggins in Chuck Wagon's Order. We did make one of those up. Oomperu dapperu dooperu. And thanks for listening. Hey, hey, you darn tootin' yes, sirree, Bob.